thankful and blessed that I'm able to be here with each of you this morning as we go through God's word together. Because that's what this is. This is us going to God together, saying, show me what you would say to us. Show me what we need to see. Show us more of you, always more of you. I pray that that is our hearts cry together this morning. So a little bit of background before we actually go into the text itself. Of course, this morning we're looking at John 6, 22 through 59. So before we get there, let's do some foundation work. So one thing I want to point out, and I've touched on it before when I've spoken, and that is the distinct purposes that each of the four Gospels have, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're not identical in what material that they put in them, and they're not exhaustive. They don't include everything. The point of the Gospels is not that they serve as biographical manuscripts for who Jesus was in his earthly ministry, but they have a different purpose So I've talked about Matthew before. I mentioned him in a prior message and that Matthew was written to the specific audience of the Jewish people to demonstrate Christ's claim to the Davidic throne. That's its purpose. So as you read Matthew, it starts initially with a genealogy showing you can trace from King David through Solomon all the way to Joseph. And so Matthew starts that way and the rest of the book is built to accomplish that purpose. The other Gospels aren't structured the same because they don't have the same audience necessarily, and they don't have the same distinct purpose. They aren't trying to say the same thing. And so the realities of who Christ is that they put in them are those that they use to accomplish whatever argument they're trying to make. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke, these are often called the synoptic Gospels, which means basically that they're similar They're from a similar perspective. They include much of the same things. The DNA is the same for the three synoptic Gospels. But John, the Gospel we're looking at this morning, he departs from this similarity that the other three share. And he relays often different things that we haven't heard in the other three Gospels about Jesus' ministry. The things that he said, the things that he did. And the purpose for this is because he has a different goal. It's not troubling that these are different. Now, this, of course, is a conversation, I think, for another time, because there's much that can be said about it. But it's not troubling that the structure is different from John versus Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Because, again, they're not meant to be biographical. John even states in John 21, verse 25, Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did for every one of them to be written. I suppose that the word itself, the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So John is acknowledging that he didn't include everything. Rather, he included that which he needed to accomplish what he was trying to do. He was trying to get across a particular message to a particular group of people about Jesus. And so that dictated what is in the gospel of John. 
So again, to Matthew, when he writes his gospel, he's writing to the Jewish people that Jesus is the Messiah King. He's the one we've been looking for all throughout Old Testament scripture. The one who was promised is Christ. So he's writing them. Christ convinced me of him being Messiah. Let me tell you of how Jesus convinced me of who he is. Each of the gospels are doing that same thing, but they're looking at something different about Jesus. So when we look at the gospel of John, what is his purpose? I would say that the purpose of the Gospel of John is to show through who Jesus is, through relaying his earthly ministry, to show through the telling of his teachings and miracles that Jesus is Yahweh God. That the Jesus that teaches is the same God who taught the prophets what they should prophesy. The Jesus that commanded the seas to be still is the same God that called them into existence. And the voice of Jesus, when he speaks, is the same voice that called to Moses from the bush, I am that I am. This is John's purpose. So in order to accomplish this goal, he includes in his gospel seven distinct instances. Each of these are made up of a declarative statement by Jesus about himself. These have collectively come to be known as the I am statements. Often it's Jesus saying I am and then he predicates it with something. This morning we're looking at I am the bread of life. But in each of these statements, he is setting himself apart. As something other than that which we have always known. He is not merely a man. He is not merely a king. He is God. So God willing, the next few opportunities I have to preach, we will be moving through these seven statements. The first of these we will be looking at this morning. I am the bread of life. The second we will do this evening. I am the light of the world. The third we will do the next time I have opportunity and so on. From there. So again, these statements are collectively referred to as the I am statements. These are statements of Jesus about himself that he is saying, I am. And the connection we must make is back to Exodus, the reading that we read earlier. I am that I am. Tell them I am has sent you. So all that being said, before we go to the text itself. Let us pray. God, we praise you for you are God. You were king of kings and Lord of lords. You were so mighty that you have called everything that exists into existence with a word from your mouth. With that same mouth, you call us to you in Jesus. And so I pray that we would be receptive to that. And as we read your word this morning, open our eyes to things that we have never seen before. Deepen our understanding of who you are. That we may praise you as I am. We love you, Lord, and all these things we pray, we ask 
In Jesus' precious name, amen. So again, the text that we're in this morning is John 6, 22 through 59. An important thing to note about each of these I am statements is they are accompanied by a sign, which is either a miracle or an event that signifies the truth of what Jesus is saying about himself. So here, when we look at John 6, 22 through 59, the sign that signifies the truth of what we're looking at this morning is prior to what the passage that we're in right now. And that is John 6, 1 through 15. This is Jesus feeding the 5,000. This is a well-known miracle. They're there. The people are hungry. No one has any food. They're contemplating what to do. The disciples are like, well, we need to send them away so that they can eat and then they can come back. There's a boy there that has three loaves and two fish. So Jesus takes this meager meal and he multiplies it to the point where all those that are present, the thousands of people that are present, each of them can eat to be filled. And that there is even enough that there are 12 baskets of food left over. So as we read the passage we're in this morning, Always think, this is the background. Jesus just did this with and for the people to whom he is now speaking. Another important thing to note quickly is verse 15. Where Jesus, after performing the miracle where they are all fed, he says, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Isn't that fascinating? That Jesus knew, because there are other encounters in Scripture where Jesus is in a town and he says something that makes everyone very angry to the point where they want him to die. And so Jesus, knowing that his time has not yet come, he leaves. But here it's different. They're not seeking to kill him. They're seeking to make him king. And Jesus' response to this is to leave. So in one sense, you could be like, well, wait a minute. I thought Jesus was king. Then you just talked about Matthew, how he is the heir to this Davidic line. That a king is coming. They think it's Jesus. Why does he leave? Bear that question in your minds also as we go into the text this morning. So let's go verse 22 through 59. I will read the passage and then we will work through it. So on the next day, this is immediately preceding the events that came before. Jesus fed the 5,000. They crossed the sea to Capernaum and now they are there. So on the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. So they're thinking, okay, well, he must be still here. But as they're looking, they're looking. Other boats came from Tiberias, came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. 
They're going to find him. These are the people that want to make him king, if forced, if they have to do it. So they're looking for Jesus. Verse 25, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you were seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is God, who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the bread, the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live Forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. So there is a lot here. This is a long passage. So there will be parts where we pause for longer periods of time. There will be other parts that we will move through rather quickly.
quickly. But going back to the beginning, verses 22 through 24. So the people are looking for Jesus. They have arrived in Capernaum. They had to get in boats to find him because they looked everywhere on the other side of the sea and Jesus isn't there. So they get in boats and they go. And then they find him in verses 25 through 27. And so they say to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And you can almost hear a little bit of frustration here. Because they want him to be king. They believe he is to be king. And here Jesus, he just leaves. He doesn't tell them he's going. He slips off to the mountain by himself. And then he goes across the water, walking on the water initially. And then in the boat with the disciples, they arrive in Capernaum. So they don't even know where he is. And so they finally find him. They say, when did you come here? And Jesus responds to them in 26. Truly, truly, I say to you, you were seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. So he says signs. What is he talking about? He's talking about where he fed the 5,000. Jesus' miracles, whenever he does something miraculous, it is not an incident that happens within a vacuum. It is not an end unto itself, although the results are always miraculous and wonderful and glorious and things for which we can praise him. The point is ultimately to guide us so that we see something greater. And that is the reality of who Christ is. So in a sense, this is a divine setup. Jesus feeds the 5,000 bread. He multiplies it in a way that they have never seen. And the people here are utterly astounded. But their surprise and their wonder is not based on the reality of it being a sign pointing to the reality of who Jesus is. It's because, as Jesus says, it's because you ate your fill of the loaves. So again, the signs, they point to a greater reality. Two writers, Leah and Black, they write, Jesus did not organize his teaching into a system. He centered it around his own person. And the Incidents of miraculous events that happen when Jesus, wherever he goes, whether it's healing or feeding, whether it's bringing people back to life. Its point is not to merely underline a moral teaching or code. It's not to help us feel good about the world we live in or about ourselves. It's not about any of that, although sometimes those things happen as a Result, the point, the purpose is Jesus himself. It is all about him. He is both the origin and the destination for everything we're looking at. Jesus feeds the 5,000 so that the people may see him for who he is 
and partake of him as the bread of life. But the people fail to see the sign. All they experience is their eating of the bread. They are fixated on this temporal reality. Their eyes are here. They never look up. It's always here. We read, remember, in verse 15, when the people desire to take him forcefully and make him king. When Jesus says here, you didn't see the sign, you only were filled with the bread. It's the same thing. In verse 15, they're mistaking Christ for only an earthly king when he is almighty God, when he is a heavenly king, king of kings and lord of lords. But they don't want that. They don't see that. They just want a king. And turning now to verse 26, but because you ate your fill of the loaves, they don't see him as the bread of life. They see him as a provider of physical bread. So their desire is less than what it should be. Their eyes are fixated on a finite temporal thing that looks like themselves rather than God who can satisfy every need. If you think to first Samuel, of course, Samuel is a judge and he was a good judge. And the people loved him and they respected him. But towards the end of his life, he got older. And he could no longer fulfill fill the office of judge as he did before. And so he abdicates office and he takes his sons and he puts them up over the people as judge in his place. And this doesn't work. They weren't like Samuel. The people knew it. And so they come to Samuel and they say, give us a king. The nations around us all have kings. We want a king like them. We want a king who is a man like us. This is what the people are doing in verse 15. They want a king, but they want a man like Saul. They do not want Yahweh God. The past few Sundays, as Pastor Tony has preached through Romans, he spent time talking about how at the root of all sin is idolatry. But that's what we're doing. Anytime we do anything that is contrary to who God is, we are bowing down to a different God. Every time that I do, I'm bowing down to Ben, not to God. We are bent upon worshiping ourselves as God rather than worshiping God. And so we exchange God for kings, for bread, for gods that are limited, that are made from dirt and defined by whatever whims we are wanting to satisfy at any given moment in time. So the people here wanted a king on their terms. They wanted earthly bread. Okay, So let's keep going. Jesus in 27, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which is the son, which the son of man will give to you for on him. God, the father has set his seal. 
What is seal? What does he mean? When the father sets his seal on the son, this is a seal of approval. This is him divinely saying, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. They point to how Jesus' words in this passage are proved and made certain by what the father approves of. So put another way, if Jesus here is spewing lies, if every word out of his mouth is a falsehood, if he is a megalomaniac with a God complex, then he wouldn't have been able to multiply the bread and the fish. He would be just merely a charlatan, saying words about himself when they mean nothing. But he did multiply the loaves and the fish. And we see this repeatedly throughout the Gospels, that when Jesus speaks, things happen which signify the reality of what he is saying. So Jesus says this, and moving to 28 through 34, you see throughout these dialogues, throughout the book of John, and we'll see it over and over, anytime Jesus is having these dialogues with religious leaders, whether it be here, with Nicodemus, with the woman at the well, Jesus will say something, and they always try to interpret Jesus' words based upon their own understanding on their, what they know. And this is what they're doing here. So then they said to him, what must we do, in verse 28, to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So here they turn it around. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. But my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Let's go back. So they take Jesus' words about himself, this bread that is contrary to anything and everything that they have ever known. All they know is physical bread. Jesus says, I have a different bread that will satisfy you forever. And they don't understand this. And so they try to tie it back to Moses because that's what they know. Moses was a man like them. And, of course, we could also look at the irony of them saying, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? Although they just partook of this miraculous event where Jesus has fed thousands of people. So they turn it back and they say, well, what about Moses? He gave us man in the wilderness, bread from heaven. So they're saying, it's like this. It's like Moses. And then Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. So Jesus corrects them. Because they try to steer the narrative back to things that they know. Jesus takes 
it back and says, no, it's not like Moses. One, Moses didn't give you anything, but the father did. And the real, the real bread of God is he who comes down and gives life to the world. Then they say something, I think, that is remarkable in 34. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. And in a sense, they're totally right. This is the right response. Every day I should get on my knees. Say, give me more of you. For only you can satisfy me. I need the bread that comes down from heaven because only that gives life to the world. Only that gives life to me. Only that can give life to my children, to my family, to my community. I need this bread of life. Of course, here they still, you know, as we keep reading, they're not there. They're still thinking in temporal terms, whether their minds are on physical bread as or Jesus is king or on a prophet like Moses. This is what is on their minds. So we come to 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. This is the first of these seven statements. I am statements. One thing I will say initially is that in this instance, as are most of the others, they are predicated by something else. He is not just saying only I am. He's saying I am the bread of life. So one could argue, well, he's not saying he's God explicitly. Thinking back to Exodus, I am that I am. Tell them I am has sent you. But if you read the whole context throughout the whole passage, the people that are listening to him are always they're trying to tie everything down to the reality that they know, which is humanity, which is themselves, which is the law. And every time they do that, Jesus contradicts it. And reveals something about himself. So when Jesus says in 33. The bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Gives life to the world. He's saying I am that bread. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So with this statement, he sets himself apart. He's saying they can no longer bear in their minds that he's saying, oh, he's a king or, oh, he's like Moses. He's put that to bed totally. They can't go there with what he's saying. He's no longer in there. He can no longer be in their minds an earthly king or a finite prophet He is saying that he is something that is unlike anything that they have ever known. And all of their attempts 
to understand and box him in on their terms, fail utterly and totally because he came from heaven, given by the Father. He is unlike anything that they have ever known, and their understanding of him is only something that can be given. We can't come up with it. We can't take it. We cannot forcefully set Jesus up as something that he is not. He is who he is. We cannot change it. Not only this in 35, but it also reveals that coming to and believing on Christ is the only means unto this life. He is the bread of life. For one to never hunger or to never never thirst, they have to partake of Christ. It's the only way. So when they say in 34, give us this bread always, the only way for that to happen is that they must receive Christ. There's no compromise. They can't bring him down. They can't talk him out of it. He is who he is. There's no satisfaction or filling up that can take place apart from him. He is the sole definition of true satisfaction or fullness. And he is the sole provider of those things. He is the source and he is the giver of the bread of life. He is. So immediately on the heels of this. We come to 36. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. Oh, what heartbreak. 37 and going from there. All that the father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. So they do not believe. We can see here 37, all that the father gives me will come to me. This is because. At least as of yet, if they have been given, the culmination of that has not yet t- taken place. So if they have not been given, they won't believe. The uplifting victory here, in 36 through 40, when it says in 39 that I should... And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Is that if you believe in Christ, if you partake of the bread of life. He can't. He won't lose you. Two reasons. One, because of who he is. He is the bread of life. You cannot partake of the bread of life. And then suddenly be empty again. You're filled with him. The second reason is what Jesus says here. 
This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing. And Jesus always does the Father's will. So if you believe on Christ, if you hold to him, if you partake of him as the bread, no one can take it, and you cannot lose it. Is he not eternal? Is he not truly the bread of life that can satisfy the most famished of hearts? If it can be lost, if we could lose it, if this bread doesn't truly satisfy totally, then everything that Jesus says has no meaning, it has no value. The Bible becomes fraud and the gospel becomes a sham. We have to believe that when we partake of the bread, we are filled with him for always. You will never again be hungry. So the Jews grumble about him because he is saying some pretty radical things if they're not true. One, although the I am the bread of life statement is predicated by bread of life, it's not merely I am. They realize the connotation. They realize that there is here one who is setting himself apart. And all along he's saying, no, I'm not just a king. No, I'm not Moses. It's not the law. It's not the manna from heaven. It's me. And so they grumble about it because, again, they're trying to turn things back to what they know. And they say, well, this can't be true. How can he say this? Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? So again, they try to tie it back down. They try to put him back in the box. So Jesus responds, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the father except he is truly who is from God. He has seen the father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life, believes life. I'm the bread of life. Partake. Your fathers ate the man in the wilderness, and so this is him responding to what they're saying. Their pinnacle of all that they know, Moses, the liberator, the one who gave them the law. He's saying, your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. The final result is all those who were with Moses went through the exodus received the law, ate the bread. The result is that they eventually all died. So we have that on one hand, and then he says in 50, this is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever, and the bread that I will give The life of the world is my flesh. And so the Jews respond with saying, was he saying that we should eat him? That's cannibalism. That's not that's not okay. We can't do that. And if you remember other people throughout John, they're doing the same thing. When Jesus tells Nicodemus, you must be born again. 
He says, well, am I to enter again into my mother's womb? When Jesus says to the woman at the well, I have life, that, that water that will give you, that you will never thirst again. And she says, well, that'd be great because I'm really tired of walking to this well. I have to go and fill up this jar. I have to take it back. It's the middle of the day. It's really hot. If you could do that, that'd be great. And so they're doing that here the same way. They're saying, well, Jesus, you're saying we should eat you? That's pretty crazy. So the first thing I want to underline is the spiritual aspect to it. Because Jesus, in his interaction with Nicodemus, it's clear he's saying, no, you must be born of what? Spirit and water. It's not entering again into your mother's womb. When he talks to the woman at the well, he's not saying, yes, you won't have to come to this well anymore. He's saying that I will give you water so that spiritually you will be filled to the brim, that you will never thirst again, that you will be satisfied. If we look immediately, we're almost done. After the passage that we're in, speaking to this same thought. Sixty-one through sixty, well, sixty through sixty-three. When many of the disciples heard it, what Jesus is saying, they said, "This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it?" But Jesus, knowing in Himself that His disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, "Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where He was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all." So what He's saying when He talks about the bread of life, it is My body. You must partake of My body, My flesh. My blood. He's not saying that it's merely flesh. Because he says in 63, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. So he's talking about something different. But I think it's amazing that initially, when they respond by saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus doubles down on the imagery. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me. He will also live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. So Jesus doubles down here and he says, you need to eat my flesh and drink my blood. You have to accept me where it fits into your nice cookie cutter lives. Those parts where it all makes sense and you're like, this works great. This was the missing piece of the puzzle. Those parts, and then also into the parts of our lives where it feels like it shatters our existence. And why must this be so? Because he is the bread of life. He is life. And to believe in him is to have it always. So Jesus says, there is no one like me. And I am like no one else. I was sent by the Father and transcend anything and everything that you have ever known. But he is here for you. He says, believe in me 
and live. I'm the bread of life. Partake of me, for there is no other. Do you know him? Do you know this Jesus who is the bread of life? Who gives us himself so that we may never be hungry again?